Before I start, I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'd like called Versify. Versify is a show where people tell stories and then hear their words turned into poetry. You'll hear poets form connections with storytellers as they gain insights into their lives, then weave these insights into works of art and offer them back as gifts, not only to the participants, but also to you, the listener. Versify is a collaboration between Nashville Public Radio, PRX, and The Porch, a nonprofit literary center. Its new season is out now, and you can find it at podcast.wpln.org, or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Jamie Quattro. Jamie's debut novel, Fire Sermon, was released in January. Her 2013 collection, I Want to Show You More, was a New York Times notable book and a finalist for numerous prizes, including the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction and the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize. Her fiction, poetry, and essays have appeared in Tin House, McSweeney's, Vice, the New York Times Book Review, and elsewhere. She teaches in the Swanee School of Letters MFA program and lives with her husband and four children in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Jamie's is writing you devour with a quickened pulse. It explores with bravery and originality issues that we're often afraid to look at straight on, like fidelity, faith, and desire. In one of my favorite stories from I Want to Show You More, called Decomposition, a primer for promiscuous housewives, a husband and wife live with the dead body of the wife's affair. Fire Sermon is about the life of a marriage and the affair that pierces it, though that description doesn't capture the stunning prose or the way that Jamie expands and collapses time throughout the book, which unfolds in intense bursts. Here, we talk about how that form took shape partially because Jamie was cheating on another book project with Fire Sermon. We also talk about Jamie's decision to enter a low-residency MFA program, about catching your narrative solutions sideways, and about the reactions women writers face when they write about sex. It is precisely the things you know, that we don't know or the things we want to find out or the roads not taken, the lives unlived. That's what compels me to write. Fiction is to find things out. to start off with, I hope, uh, not too thorny of a question, but it, it's, it kept being the first thing that came to mind when I thought of your work, just how fearless and brave your writing is. And, and I wonder if you could talk about, you know, whether that ever is a feeling that is apparent to you in the drafting process or whether you're aware of ever like being afraid and needing to push yourself further or if the fear is just kind of not there. I know that's like 15 questions, but wherever you want to <laughs> well, start no, there. First, thank you. That, that it, I do take that as a, a tremendous compliment that um, at least in the reading, people are perceiving a fearlessness. It's funny. I, I was, I'm doing a interview for Barnes and Noble with, um, with Lily King and we were talking about writing sex and how um, she felt shocked reading some of the sex in Fire Sermon. And she said, you know, how did it feel to write it? And I was saying, you know, it actually feels highly technical mm. because it's so difficult to write sort of that. I just think writing sex scenes is so difficult in general. I mean, we talk, we were laughing. We're like, yeah, you just got to get in there and get out as fast as you can <laughs> when you're writing about it. But, um, but yeah, I think sometimes what you feel reading or what you perceive reading is the result of like 50 drafts, right? Right. Um, and at least in my case. And so it, there, there, this technicality enters in that, that doesn't feel fear, fearless at all. It just feels very mundane. So do you mean a technicality in terms of like like literally, I'm thinking of like a director staging a sex scene, like yes. in that term, in those terms. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, like you don't want to – you don't have a vocabulary open to you, right? You can't use the vocabulary of sexuality when you're right. writing about it because it's just it, – you just don't. It's it's immediately renders it crass. You and, go into like bodice ripper territory. Right, and it's all – exactly. See, it's almost like you have to say it without saying it, and that is such a difficult thing to do. You have to find the detail or the line of dialogue that will communicate what's happening without actually – describing what's happening, if mm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So so it takes a lot of revision and a lot of thought and just kind of a lot of, you know, I imagine just like an old grandmother, like stitching and unstitching. <laughs> I love <laughs> that we've married <laughs> sex scenes and old grandmothers immediately. Yes, somehow, <laughs> somehow those two things came together. So but, are, are you initially to just kind of get your head around what is even happening? Is it the stuff that you know can never see the light of day and then you sort of reverse engineer it? A little bit. Yeah, sometimes I have to overwrite and then back off. Uh, that that often happens. Uh, sometimes I realize I haven't written enough, so it, it just kind of depends on the particular scene I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And do you do you find that even for just really sort of pivotal or very intense emotional moments, that same kind of situation arises? The same kind of technical feeling. Yeah. Sometimes an emotion will take me by surprise in the drafting process, but I'm so far removed, typically so far removed. These are characters like it's kind of a bit like watching a movie scene Mm -hmm. often when I'm drafting and it feels apart from me. So I can be writing something that later on, maybe I'll come back to it six months later and be like, oh my God, that's really intense. But at the time, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't feel that way to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but every now and then I'll get taken by surprise, usually not to do with sex scenes or anything like that, but more to do with, there was a story I wrote in the first collection about a little girl whose mom was paralyzed in a wheelchair. And um, at the end, the girl kind of like cries out in defense of her mother because um, she's just incapable of speaking up for herself. Mm-hmm. And that moment just caught me off guard as I was drafting. And I remember actually having to step away and like calm down and mm, wow. <laughs> it was just, so every now and then, but yeah, for the, for the most part, it's, there's, there's a distance between the emotion that's on the page and the emotion I'm experiencing as I'm, as I'm drafting that scene. So yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that completely makes sense. It makes me think of, um, I was reading some past interviews with you and you described this feeling, this one particular feeling during the writing process. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, it, it totally resonated with me, too. And you said, uh, I think I think you were talking about the anointing and you said that something, some quality of the story you weren't expecting. And then you said, I didn't want it to be true, but there it was. And you kind of have to, like, follow that thread. Right. Oh, I know. It was this uh, story, Demolition. Oh, okay. Where they tear down the church. Yeah. And they kind of <laughs> descend into this bizarre cult kind of worship service thing where they substitute oral sex for communion. Right. And by the time all that was happening, I was like, I have no idea what's <laughs> going on right now. <laughs> but these characters are driving. I think I think maybe it was that story. Because okay. that, that one really did take me by surprise. I feel like I personally am discovering a lot while I write. But then I'm also I've also talked to a lot of writers who, in addition to doing that, you know, are also just thinking about their characters and their stories a lot. And so before they kind of come to the page, they've almost got a sense of how those characters would react to like any given situation. So right. like you, with that experience that you're describing of watching, um, 
what does anything come before that? Such a good question. And it's such a good question in relation to writing stories versus writing novels. So the, so the novel I'm working on now, which was actually the novel I started writing before I started working on oh Fire I can't tell you how much I loved learning that you cheated on your first yeah. novel with this novel. <laughs> I totally cheated on it. But so that that first novel, which is called Two-Step Devil, which I'm back into now pretty deeply, I have had to know so much more about my characters simply because they have, they're just nothing close to me whatsoever. I have no access to, okay, so the main character used to be a welder in the 1950s. So I've had to just learn so much about arc welding in the 1950s and how that process worked. And I went and like worked with a couple welders and they let me put on the equipment and <laughs> fire up the electrode and have that experience and um, had to take a whole bunch of notes and just really get outside myself and understand what, what a welder would feel and think. Um, whereas I, I can't, I don't think I've had to written or so far written a short story that involved that much research. For this novel, I also had to make a huge timeline. And there are like four of them because there's four different points of view operating simultaneously. And, you know, it's covering one entire while I just started drawing on the wall of my guest room slash office. Um, So there's a lot, I just know a lot more in, in the novel process, it seems, where there's stories I can start out with maybe a line of dialogue maybe an image and just kind of sketch from there and watch things emerge. Right. And I, I think it's a really tough question to when there is something that's so research, research intensive, like when to do that research. Yes. Yes, exactly. Sometimes I'll draft and kind of get a semblance or know where I'm going or, or have the whole structure laid out. And then I'll be like, okay, now I need to go research. Um, and in other, in the case of this welding scene, I could not write a word mm. until I even had the vocabulary and the experience of what it would be like to do this. Um, one of the more interesting examples of what I had to do research at the end was there's a story about a corpse um, de- decomposing in my first book. And I kind of made up the stages of decomposition. I mean, I did a little bit of research, but just made up these like medical sounding terms of the five stages of decomposition and sent the story off and it won this contest. And then I kind of panicked. <laughs> oh, no. I just made up human decomposition. So I actually sent the story to Thomas Lynch, who's a poet and a mortician. I was like, could you just look at my five stages of decomposition? Because I'm pretty sure I made them all up. And he just wrote back, oh, but that's the job of the fiction writer to make things up. <laughs> kind of the end of it. But yeah, I did I did have to go back in and research and make sure I'd gotten it right. Yeah. I mean, I mean something like that too, I think. Uh well, I guess everything you could say. I guess you could say this about most everything, but like, you know, me as a normal reader, I'm not necessarily going to be like that doesn't check out. Whereas like, you know, preserving some kind of sense of reality and like something that's more everyday or that's more likely for a reader to be taken out of the story. Right, maybe, exactly. You know. Yeah, I've had my stories fact-checked before, and I always wondered about, like, why they're fact-checking fiction. And then one editor just said, you know, if you're actually using names of real towns or real locations that people might recognize, it can interrupt the continuous dream to have factual errors. So they just need to be right. But if, whereas if you make up the name of a town, or it's all made up, it doesn't matter. 
Right. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this just yesterday because um, the novel project that I'm working on um, takes place both in Appalachia and in Detroit. And so I'm keeping, you know, I'm naming all of those places. Like I'm, I like Detroit is the name of the city, but then I'm changing all the neighborhoods that I'm talking about and kind of wonder, I'm, I keep going back and forth about whether that's a good idea or whether I should keep the existing names and like gain all the shorthand that kind of comes with that for people who are familiar with it. Yeah, that's tricky. I have done the same thing with Lookout Mountain where I've used the names Lookout Mountain, but then changed the streets mm. and the street names mm. and that kind of thing. And I've had people come up and say, you know, Lee does not actually intersect with Lula Lake or <laughs> that kind of thing. And <laughs> I'm like, shoot, it's fiction. You know, I sort of thought I could just make all that up. Right. But, <laughs> right. Unless you're from here, you would never know. Do you like writing essays? Well, you should ask. I'm actually editing an essay. In fact, as soon as we're off the Skype call, I have to quick go into the edits and turn into the Paris Review. So oh, nice. it's a an essay that kind of addresses this question I got a lot, asked a lot with the last book, which is, what does your husband think about your work? Oh, God. It's this weird thing. I, I My premise was kind of like, I wonder if male writers get asked, you know, they stand up and read about sex. Right. You know, Frank's sexuality uh, and and people asking them, what does your wife think about? Or what does your girlfriend think about your work? I cannot imagine that scenario no. happening. And yet the reverse happens to us and that there's this sort of underlying assumption that, you know, men think about sex and women don't. Right. And so therefore, you know, a man could make up all of this sexual detail, but surely a woman could not make it up. She must have done those things or lived them. And mm -hmm. it's just, I'm kind of probing and unpacking and peeling back the layers of the onion with, with that kind of question. Yeah, I I am really glad that you're doing that. I'm excited to read that because I I was thinking that as I was reading, you know, because I of course read the short story collection first, and then as I was finishing up Firestorm, and I was like, oh my god, I can't imagine like the awkward conversations that they get cornered at cocktail parties, like you and your husband. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I'm <laughs> I'm sure that happens all the time. It does, and it's funny. I think you know, God, it, what a, what a marriage I'd have if I you know just kind of gone out and had these affairs and then wrote it all down right. afterwards. <laughs> And then projected getting it old, you know, and lying to him. And yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, it, it just baffles me that people think, well, she, you know, surely she couldn't have made any of that up. And sometimes I think that it is precisely the things, you know, that we don't know or the things we want to find out or the roads not taken, um, the lives, the lives unlived. That, right. That's what compels me to write fiction is to find things out, um, not just you know, writing down experiences I've already lived. Right. And, you know, maybe you address this in your essay, but it's the same thing that happened with Cat Person. It's like, oh, well, this has to be an essay. Like, people confuse that for an essay, like, endlessly. It's like, no, actually, a woman can think these thoughts all by herself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I thought about mentioning Cat Person in the essay. Um, I drafted it about a month, month and a half ago, and then it's just kind of been sitting in edits over the holidays. But I think I'll tell I don't know that I'll reference it just because everybody talked about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think every point has been made along those lines, but it's true. It's true. And it, it seems to only happen when you're writing about sex mm -hmm, as a woman, mm -hmm. because I think, well, maybe it's simply because I write about a middle, middle-aged woman and, you know, she lives in the South and she has a certain number of children and people think, oh, well, it all must be true. But then I think, no, because I wrote a couple stories about that 
woman in the South with the same number of kids dying of cancer. Not, no one has ever asked, you know, have you had cancer? Right. Not once. I wrote about a woman whose husband was chronically depressed and, um, you know, suicidal, and she almost gives up her faith because of it. No one's ever said, so, you know, is your husband depressed and suicidal? And have you almost given up your faith? It's, it seems to be the question is always directed at women when they're writing about sex. And it's like this, this like inability to believe. Well, I mean, I guess like for men, it, it maybe is the idea of like, well, if you're not, if you're not my sexual object and you're an object, you know, and you're a, a creature with your own sexual agency, that disrupts my foundation. Narrative about myself. And I don't know like, how to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point. I like that. Maybe I'll put that in that. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to back up a little bit and talk about how you came to writing in the first place? Did you, did you always know you wanted to write? Sure. Um, Yes, actually, I, I never remember a time in my life when I wasn't writing or didn't want to be a writer. So my mother has saved the stories I wrote in like first and second grade. Um, it, I she's kept this little piece of paper, like you know, in third grade, where you have like, what do I want to be when I grow right. up? It was, I want to be a reader and a writer. <laughs> so oh it's my just god, all, yeah, that's all the dream. The part of me, <laughs> reading is kind of what I did for most of my life. I didn't, I wasn't, I was a really geeky kid up until about my junior year in high school. Um, I didn't go out. I I came home after school and read books. And then when I went to college, of course I majored in English and graduated when I was 20 and went to grad school and got my master's degree in English and just kind of kept going down that path. And, um, eventually after, you know, having four children in five years, um, kind of started writing desperately while they were napping or just in little, you know, waiting in the carpool line or whatever, but started putting more emphasis into my creative writing and less into my analytical kind of intellectual writing. Mm-hmm. And, um, when the baby went to kindergarten, I kind of fully decided to take the plunge and went back to get my MFA right. uh, at, at Bennington. Yeah. And that's a, which is a low residency program. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, that was like a pivotal time, a crucial um, decision because I'd always had this dream, right. Of, of being a writer and having books out in the world, but I did, a, I didn't know how you do it. I didn't have any connections in the literary world and B, I didn't know if I was any good at it. Mm-hmm. I thought I was, and, you know, teachers uh, along the years, Oh, you're a good writer. But to actually sit in a workshop with Amy Hempel and David Gates and Jill McCorkle to sit in a workshop with them and have them, you got to be vulnerable and put your put your work out there, and then have it run through the ringer. But at the end, you know, kind of get confirmed that, like, yes, you you have some talent for this was was just life changing. Mm-hmm. And you and it must feel, you know, I I even experience a little bit of this. You know, I all of my training, all of my writing training is in journalism. And so oh. when I started, you know, like my, when I was a kid, all I, everything that I was writing was, was creative writing. But like, you know, at some point I think I like made the sort of like pragmatic shift into like the, the, the nonfiction world. Um, but, and I think about that now too, when I'm working on stuff, it's just that idea of like that community that you don't have where you're like, well, you know, of course all of my friends are really intelligent readers, but like, I don't have a network of fiction writers the way that I have a network of nonfiction writers. Right. And you must have felt very, I mean, you know, you're kind of at, at a, an additional remove, I guess. Right. Cause I'm not in New York <laughs> and yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't writing really anything other than sort of 
before that, um, other than my secret stories that I was always writing in poetry and that kind of thing, the only things I'd put out in the world were graduate school, you know, English pieces about <laughs> Wordsworth's images of marriage in the ruined cottage, that kind of thing. So yeah, it was, it was amazing to be, to kind of gather a network of people around people that you have rapport with and you can trade work with and that you trust. And, um, a lot of the friendships I made at Bennington are still to this day, um, nine years later, the people that I send my first drafts to. Mm. So I, I'm an advocate. I'm an advocate. Do you mind if I MFA. ask how old you were when you went to Bennington? Yeah, I was 35, 35. I'm so glad that I waited a, you have a lot more material to work with right. because you've lived and ex- had experiences. Yeah. Um, I'm so thankful that I had children to keep me kind of balanced between life and art. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine if I'd just gone straight from undergrad into into a program, you know, what would I have written about? <laughs> <laughs> it, it does take some getting to know your own heart and um, living some – yeah varied experiences before you really, I feel like before you really have any much to say, right. you don't make it all about you as much. Mm. And you still do. I mean, we all do. We all have these, at least I do have this ego that it's just always there. I oh, try right. to put it to death and it's there and I want it to be about me, but I don't know, the older I get, the, the less I think, okay, it's all right. I don't, you know, you don't need this to be about you. And I think if I was a 22 or 24 year old having, you know, books come out in the world, it would have been a lot harder for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. But maybe not for everyone. No, that 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 sounds true. And I think um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, a writer, Amy Hamerl, here in Detroit, uh, runs this really wonderful event called the Shady Ladies Literary Society, where like she brings in first time women authors, and she does a whole dinner and around them, and has like you know a bartender come in and make a cocktail around their book, and it's just this really cool uh, project. And she had this great Instagram the other day. Um, saying that, you know, she, she gets jealous sometimes and she can't help, you know, she wishes she were better, but sometimes she just looks at somebody's success and thinks like, oh, why didn't that happen to me? And, um, and she's been teaching this creativity and entrepreneurship course. And she said that one of her students, uh, use this expression, empowered women, empower women. And I've been trying to like keep that in my brain ever since I saw it. Cause I think that it's a really, it's something that I think it's such an easy trap to fall into of just like, well, but, but this is, this is all about me. Right. I mean, it's my work. It feels so intimate to me. It's like how I identify myself. It's really hard to separate. I think it does take a lot of maturity and a lot yeah. of just aging and getting years under your belt to kind of separate from that. Yeah, and that recognition that I love, I love what she said, and I love this shady ladies thing, <laughs> and I'm super jealous that you have that. <laughs> I have, there's, I don't have a huge literary network here in Chattanooga, but um, yeah, there, there's just something, this idea that the pie is only so big, yes. there's only so much of it, and if this person got 50% of the pie, that's less for you, which, which is such bullshit. The pie is infinite, you know, and... I, I do believe that the more you share and promote and come alongside and help other people, that there's like the karmic balance that just it's it's going to explode open the pie. <laughs> You're adding to it's all pie. possibilities. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we could talk now a little bit about uh, some of your big themes. You know, this this kind of collision of 
of desire and faith, where that sort of comes from for you. Right. Um, it's so, it's interesting to try and figure out where it comes from. I mean, I was raised in a pretty strict religious home. Mm-hmm. When I say strict, I don't mean uh, the church we went to was like theologically really strict and conservative. My parents weren't, which served serve me well. Cause I think a lot of people who come out of religious backgrounds that are very strict within the home, they're, they're, it's wounding in a way that they can't really go back to that faith anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, at least it would be for me, but my parents were super permissive. Like we were not forbidden to dance. We were not forbidden alcohol. We were not forbidden trick or treating. Like some of my more conservative uh, friends with more conservative parents, so um, I've kind of come out of that whole tradition of like right-wing evangelicalism that I no longer identify with it in any way, shape, or form, and yet I haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater, I guess. Mm-hmm. We, we get a sort of like a much more high church, liturgical, um, open-minded, I guess, version um, of the church. So it's given me a curiosity and, a, and still in a, uh, some t- attachment to theology and to, to spiritual discussions. Um, I think that just is part of me and part of who I am in a way that I want to be open to, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side, I, I practice yoga like you do and um, have, have traveled to Northern India and, um, you know, spent time with Tibetan Buddhists and gone to temples and genuflected. And I find so much of Eastern religion also of interest and um, incredibly compelling. And I see so many similarities between Eastern and Western thought. So there's that whole aspect of fire sermon in particular, of course, fire sermon being the title of the, um, the poly discourse, the Buddhist poly discourse, which mm-hmm. is the first sermon he gave after his enlightenment. So just kind of querying and, and, and probing and asking questions, I think, along these spiritual lines, Eastern, Western thought. And then in the relation to sexuality, there's, there's something, if you read the Bible, it's full of sex. <laughs> and if you, if you, the, even the metaphorical language used is, you know, the church is the bride of Christ. So, and yet when you think about, well, the Christian view of sex, it's like, you should, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So why, why is there this disparity between the way that the Bible and other scriptural texts talk about spirituality and the ways it's kind of become codified as a thou shalt not mm-hmm. when, when it seems to me they should be much more aligned. And that, that way of thinking that, some of the Christian mystics had, um, especially the medieval women Christian mystics, that intuitive notion that sexuality and spirituality are very closely aligned fascinates me. Mm -hmm. It just keeps finding its way into my work, (laughs) for better, for worse. I think this is something you'll have listened to this episode now more recently than me, so you can correct me. But but Garth, I think, also talks about that idea of, of kind of sexuality being the closest kind of transcendental experience that that gets you know as close to what you know the idea of a higher power is is working toward. Absolutely. I I've talked about this in interviews before, but the word ecstasis, mm-hmm. ek is out, stasis is to stand, like to stand outside oneself. It's, it, we we describe ecstasy as like a coming out of the body, right? A spiritual experience. And yet 
everything we know that produces an ecstatic experience is located completely within the material, within the body. Mm -hmm. So drugs or, or sex or breathing exercises or meditation exercise, those produce ecstatic experiences. So somehow the only way, the only thing we know of like paradise or heaven on earth is located, not outside the body, but within it somehow. Mm -hmm. And so I do think sexuality in that way is, you know, you can look at it that way as a bodily experience that somehow gets at a trans body experience. And and I was really interested to talk to you. Maybe this is tell me if I'm if I'm over uh, over romanticizing the artistic process. But I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of like these these concepts of fidelity that you use in your work, in you know marital fidelity, fidelity to your religion, and then kind of writerly faith, um, which mm-hmm. seems like a, something that we all need to have and supply at, you know, different levels at different times. Um, I just mm-hmm. wonder if you've ever kind of thought about the crisscross there. Interesting. I, well, first of all, I have to say, I love that you start out by saying that fire sermon, you say fidelity before infidelity. Mm. Cause I, I do think that ultimately it is a book about fidelity, mm. even though most, most people are going to focus on the infidelity. Right. Um, and yeah, fidelity as an artist. Um, Leslie Jamison and I were just talking about about this. We're doing a kind of a lengthy conversation for print somewhere. We don't know where yet, but we were talking about it in the context of um, addicts being mm. hurt. So her book's called The Recovering. It's amazing. It's it's coming out. I think in April, and um, it's kind of about her own journey from alcohol addiction and out of it and um, her own recovery process alongside the recovery processes of other famous um, writers that were in Iowa, um, Ray Carver and Dennis Johnson and some of those kind of big names. And we were talking about how the acts often lead to the feelings. Mm -hmm. You don't wait for the feelings to come and then act like an addict who operated that way, recovering addict, would be sunk Mm -hmm. that you just have to sometimes go through the motions over and over and over again, trusting that on the backside of all of that, there will be gifts that are greater than the giving in would have been. And so sometimes, yeah, writing does feel like that. You know, you got to sit your ass down Mm -hmm. and you don't feel like it. A teacher once said to me, don't wait for the muse to show up. Right. I had no idea what she meant at that point, but I understand it now that um, writing leads to writing, even writing that feels like nothing, even writing that you want to cheat on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I could compare it to, in some ways, marital fidelity. I mean, obviously, any person who's been married any length of time is going to come up against some kind of temptation at some point right. where they're going to feel like not being faithful. And um, I guess it's just a matter of what you do with that, you know. Same with same with the desire to to drink if you're an alcoholic, or to use if you're an, a drug addict, or to stop writing if you're an you know fear ridden, <laughs> right? Terrified, um, you know, aspiring novelist or short story writer that, that so many fears will plague you have to keep showing up the the fidelity thing uh about fire sermon specifically um i would love to talk more about that i i get why people 
would classify it. I mean, I get the impulse to say yeah. infidelity, oh, yeah. but sure. um, how do you? Can you talk about more about how you how you see it? Yeah, so it's. I guess the way I've thought of it or, or couched it is it's the story of incredibly long-term marriage with this kind of hot physical fair right in the juicy center of it. <laughs> so that, that affair becomes sort of like this vortex mm. around which the rest of the novel swirls. So while, while that is the vortex and while that is the center that the novel begins um, and ends in kind of keeps coming back to faithfulness, faithfulness to a religion, faithfulness to beliefs, faithfulness to a husband, faithfulness to children, um, faithfulness to extended family. So I, I hope, I hope that that's clear. And I know that, you know, the eroticism is, a, is absolutely not in the marriage. And of course this character is struggling with some particularly unique things within her marriage. Um, sort of a, husband who is really wonderful in every way except for in the sense that he coerces and forces sex and you know yeah. physical forces at some points which um that was a hard that was a hard scene to write I will say that mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and did you was that was that a surprise revelation for you that Thomas was that sort of husband yeah I didn't I didn't expect him to do that you know shoving her over yeah. I don't want to give too much away, but I, yeah, I didn't expect that to happen. And that was one of those scenes where I meant like you have to get out fast, mm-hmm. where he just kind of says something and then you just go right back into her mind mm-hmm. and it, there's no more description after that. It, it was a less is more moment. Yeah. Yeah. And did that grow out of a short story? Firestorm in the uh, general, I mean? No. I, once I started drafting it and realized kind of what it was about or where it was going, there were a couple other short stories that I'd written, not in my first collection, but newer short stories, one called Wreckage and one called Wave Function Collapse. And I took little bits from both of those stories that just passages and I reworked the language mm-hmm. and um, appropriated them. But um, no, it wasn't like I had a short story and then just kept going with it at all, at all. Um, in fact, Fire Sermon began with just an image I had in my head kicking around of a well, I had an idea actually for a short story that I never that I never really wrote. I started kind of drafting ideas and then never wrote it. But it was a sort of surreal narrative about a couple, um, and they meet and they start. They take a walk around a pond, and with every lap, they begin to age. Mm. And so the first lap they age ten years, and the second lap they age twenty. By the time they've done like eight or nine laps, they're ancient. And like the man is starting to stumble and that's, that was it. That was the idea (laughs) I had in my head. So I actually kind of wrote that into a story I was working at the time, um, wreckage. And then later things just kept, I kept thinking about that couple and like, why did they, why were they aging so fast? And, um, why did they keep walking around the pond together? And those questions, those questions made me start figuring fire sermon out. How did the form of it? take shape because it's got a bunch of I mean it's it's very uh I don't even know quite how to describe it it's it's partially epistolary but like not totally because often the letters are not being sent or getting responses and then there's some some kind of dialogue with the I assume the therapist I don't know if you saw that maybe as like a priest or some sort of spiritual leader but yeah I think that I left that intentionally um 
it could be a therapist. It could be she's dialoguing with herself. Um, it could be a type of religious voice. I, yeah, um, I, I, I've always, I always thought of it as her therapy sessions, but you could think of it in a number of ways, really. At the formally, at first I, I, f- I started answering this question by saying, well, it was because I was sneaking off to write. I was cheating. So I was at McDowell Colony when I wrote a lot of it, or when I realized that I, I was going to actually kind of stop working on the contracted novel and write this one. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I felt like I really felt bad because I had this residency and this, um, I was kind of, you know, it's such a gift to be there and you have all this time. And I'd said, you know, I needed to finish this contracted novel. And then here I was, quote unquote, sneaking away off to my little studio in the woods to write these totally subversive. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Subversive religiously, subversive in the sense that I wasn't doing what I was, quote unquote, supposed to be doing. So I think I was writing these short, intense bursts out of that feeling of, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And I'm here and I've been given this gift of a residency and I'm not even doing what I'm supposed to be Mm. doing. Um. And then, yeah, I think, I mean, who's to say why it form- formally emerged that way in the sense of what the characters themselves are experiencing, but there is a fragmented quality, I think, to a- an adulterous affair um, that I would, it kind of explodes your life into, you know, this is my home life and this is my mm-hmm. adulterous life. And um I don't know, maybe that fragmented quality of short, intense bursts. I mean, that's the way she's communicating with him. That's the way their affair happens. These quick trips where they, where they meet, um, maybe it mimics that a little bit, Mm -hmm. but again, that's not intentional. I don't, I don't necessarily intend much. (laughs) I think intention can be like the death of my works. Right. Just try and let what happens happen. And hope it works in the end. I what I really love how it plays too with the way that you the amount of time that you cover in the book and the way that you compress it. Like it it does kind of give this sort of overheated like slightly delirious feeling to like the reading experience cuz you just are blazing through these years of lives. Yeah, I love the notion of like a more Augustinian concept of of time where you know, everything, there's sort of like the eternal now, mm-hmm. like we're trapped in this linear time frame, but that actually it's an illusion, right? We know that we know Einstein proved that, that mm-hmm. really time is, is relative to movement through space. And so you know, how do you formally, how do you structurally get at that sense of being outside of time that, you know, anybody who's fallen in love, you, you kind of do have that sense that I don't exist on in the time, the space time continuum anymore. <laughs> it right. does not exist for me. I'm outside of it somehow. And you know, it gets into those religious notions of eternity and God. And so to capture that sense of time moving forward and backward and massive swaths of time being covered in a single sentence, it's probably partly why um, my creative brain was making me do that. <laughs> <laughs> I um, just finished reading. I'm really late to the game on this, but I, I just yesterday finished Sing Unburied Sing, um, which is incredible. If you have, oh, I'm no. sure you've probably been better than me and have read it a while ago. But um, I, I was really struck too by the way that she handles um, 
that idea of kind of the eternal now, like that's something that really comes out with the characters' various spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences towards the end of the book. Um, and it was interesting to read the two of you so close together. I need to read the whole thing. So she that that novel was excerpted in the Oxford American, and I devoured the excerpts, mm. and I bought the book immediately, and just haven't finished it. But yeah, no, now going to go do so. It's really, it's really. I, I definitely needed to take a minute after I finished it. Like I like went and meditated and was like, I just need to, it's a, it's very intense. <laughs> it's a lot. Wow. It's a lot. I mean, and just a really heartbreaking, you know, in, in the beautiful way that fiction can be where you're just like, I feel this so viscerally. I need to step away and remind myself that it's not real. Ugh, I felt that reading um, Sharon Olds recently. Well, not that recently, but she has a poetry collection called Stag's Leap. Mm, I haven't read her, but she's mentioned in Fire Sermon, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's one of my favorite poets. Read Stag's Leap. It's such a heartbreaking book. It's about her her divorce after like 30 years of marriage or something. Are you spending now most of your days writing? So I would like to say yes. Um, but the days seem to be right now, especially with the book having just come out yesterday, hijacked right now by just interview requests or um, all of that. And so it actually is kind of nice to you know, have an excuse to, to not write. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm a big avoider. And then when something is, when I have to do something or when I'm in something or when I'm like, okay, this is happening, then I just completely stop doing everything else and I'm all in. Um, I think it was, was Kazu, Kazuo Ishiguro who, when he was writing the remains of the day, maybe just like went in a closet for two weeks. Mm but I contend to be that, that kind of a writer. And I have to be very careful because it's, it's the sort I'm so all or nothing that it can be not, not helpful to the rest of my family, but a typical day. So a typical day when I'm not, you know, in the middle of a book release or, um, out on tour, or anything would be, I, my husband gets up at five every day. So I would drag myself out of bed when he gets up mm-hmm. too, and, um, come to the kitchen table where, um, I do most, a lot of my, um, writing and open my computer and turn off the internet. So I have freedom software right. for when I need to work. And I would look over what I'd written the day before. Um, this is if I'm actually in the phase of having it on my computer, by the way, I, I draft longhand. Right. Okay. So especially fiction, I can, I think Garth said this too, and I was totally nodding my head. I can write essays and you know, nonfiction pieces on my computer, but for fiction, I have to have a yellow legal pad mm. and just be completely messy. And it, it doesn't even look like sentences, but once I'm at my computer and I'm, I'm drafting and getting it into the computer, I'll look over what I wrote yesterday and I will despair. And I'll think this is terrible. And what am I doing? Right. <laughs> I can't write. And I'll start editing what I wrote the day before. And that will lead into some new work and um, some new sounds and some new sentences. And then if I feel like I'm getting going with that, sometimes I'll walk away from the computer and get my long hand out again and keep going, Mm. um, depending how far in I could go. But I'll write until – it used to be I would write until the kids woke up and i get them off to school. Now that um, I just have the one son left at home and he drives, I can kind of get up and say good morning and, you know – get breakfast if I need to, and then just keep going. Uh, And usually I can write until about 11 or 12 at the latest. And then I have to stop for the day and I'll run and go go to yoga or um, 
do other things. And I teach as well. Um, in the summers I teach at Swanee. And so right now I'm getting my reading list and syllabus prepared and, um, all of that, that kind of work in the afternoons, phone calls, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I'll read in the evenings. Um, I just love to have my nose um, in a book at all times. Right now I'm reading a galley of a book called The Crossway by Guy Stagg. It's this, he's a young writer. He's British. Um, I met him, his, his publisher, he and I share a British publisher and he um, had a couple nervous breakdowns and was severely mentally ill. And as he was coming out of it, he decided that the way to healing was going to be from wa- to walk from Canterbury, England to Jerusalem Whoa. by himself on foot. It took him like 10 and a half months um, with no, he had no plan. He just would stay in ch- from church to church, from monastery to monastery, um, just kind of depending on the good graces of strangers the entire way. It's a phenomenal wow. journey. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been, I can't, kind of can't wait to get back to it every night. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Right now he's in Tel Aviv, so he's getting close. Yeah, getting there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Almost done. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, Garth uh, made me kind of reconsider the longhand as well. Uh, just the way that he described, like, how peaceful and intimate those mornings were. I was like, oh, that just speaks to something that, like, I think is very easy, had been very easy for me to lose with my writing in terms of just, like, kind of what we were going back to what we were saying before of that making it too much about me and, like, making it too much about, like, is it perfect and does it look perfect? And and it's much easier for me to let those constraints go when I'm writing by hand. Absolutely. I will self-edit to death if I try and compose on the computer. I'll start editing every sentence as it comes out, and it's just not... It's just not productive. And then what I've been doing lately that I like a lot too, because I, I am a similar, uh, I have a similar routine in that I don't get up I, quite that early, but, but well, I, believe me, I wouldn't either. <laughs> I can <laughs> only like write. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can kind of only like, you know, do like generative writing for a couple hours in the morning. But then the actual, another really added, nice added side bonus of the long handwriting is then in the afternoons, I can transcribe that and kind of fall back into it again and almost sort of like trick myself into like, you know, getting a little bit more mileage out of it in a day. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, generative, I mean, as close to the dream state as possible when yeah. I wake up in the morning is she seems to be the sweet spot for, for new work. And so you're uh, you're writing at home most of the time. I I I'm, I know this article was a couple years old, but I saw the Runner's World piece on you. And you're at like a, a hip little Chattanooga co-writing co-working space. I know space. it's so sad that place is gone. Um, it's called the Camp House, and the, I shouldn't say it's gone. They moved into this huge space. It's a former parking garage. And it just doesn't have the same feel. Mm. I can't work there. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I do. I do have a little downtown space that I rent. Um, right now, the heat doesn't work, and it's freezing. So I'm I'm working at home. But um, I need to call the landlord <laughs> and tell him, tell him to fix the heat. Uh, but I'll go down there sometimes. You know, I got a puppy a year ago, and so for a little while I was house training her, and I got in the habit of staying home mm-hmm. to house train. But now that she's she's house trained, I can start taking her to to the little studio too. But yeah, for the most part, um, right now I'm working at home. And is exercise a big part of your process? Yeah, um, I'm a runner, and as you, if you read that Runner's World article, then <laughs> that is a huge part. I definitely feel that I can 
solve problems on runs. Mm -hmm. If I've been working in the mornings and then I go out for a run, so many things will occur to me in that kind of wide open endorphin space at about like mile three or four. Um, I'll think, oh yeah, that's what needs to happen. Or, oh, I need to change this sentence that way. Or I should try X, Y, Z. It seems to, to work best for me that way versus getting up and taking a run. Right. That doesn't seem to be as generative for me. What about you? Yeah. Um, it's kind of similar. The, um, yoga, uh, sometimes things will occur to me in Shavasana, you know, which is like, yeah. oh, of course, like the opposite of the point of that, but oh, well, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. And, and often, uh, like when I'm doing dishes is a bit, is another big one. Um, I find dishes, like I find washing dishes, like actually like a very pleasant, like physical experience. I just really enjoy it. I don't know why. Um, but I have exactly what you've said. Like I've been stuck and think like, I know I'll sweep the kitchen and you know, just, it doesn't work to, you, you kind of can't fake it that way. Right. You have to catch it sideways, like out the corner of your eye. Right. You have to like not be intentionally like, okay, I'm going to go for a run and solve these problems. Right. It's <clears throat> a forget about it. This is a question I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, which is uh, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Hmm. Creative satisfaction would be just one good sense. <laughs> really, truly, if I if I can have a day where I think today I wrote a really beautiful sentence, I feel really happy. And if there's more than one, that's even better. But really, truly, because because one beautiful lyrical sentence that has the right cadence and sound to it, to me, that's that leads to the next one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. it gives you the sort of if you think of it like music, you have your your opening bars and those opening bars will have motives and, and um, suggestions within them that will lead to further measures of music. And I, I like to think of it that way anyways. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.